You're going to love this. Just love it. Yeah. You really will. Really. Yes, I do. I got the feeling that something right. To educate I'm just the electorate. Clowns to the left of me, jokers to the right, just how I like it. Hey, welcome America, this is your Bradcast. I am Brad Friedman, your friendly citizen blogger, investigative journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, and all-around swell fellow... Coming at you live from Los Angeles, 90.7 FM in L.A., 98.7 FM in Santa Barbara, 93.7 FM in San Diego, 99.5 FM in Ridgecrest and China Lake, and of course, coast to coast and around the globe on KPFK.org, on Stitcher Radio, on the TuneIn Radio app. All on your smartphone and on the Progressive Voices channel on TuneIn. And as if that's not enough, we are now welcoming aboard our new affiliate, Netroots Radio. Glad to be on uh, Netroots Radio and glad you can join us this afternoon. And speaking of Netroots, by the way, if uh, any of you folks out there, my progressive friends, are going to be heading up to Netroots Nation this weekend, I hope you will seek me out. I almost said hunt me down, but let's just say seek me out. Uh, I'll uh, I'll be headed up there. We're uh, we're driving up. I'm driving up with the lovely Desi Doyen of Green News Report, who will be joining us on this program in a little bit. Uh, it, two films actually that I am uh, I'm in, but they're really good anyway. Are screening on Saturday. One of them is Shadows of Liberty, which we've talked about here on this program before. And you can get more information at shadowsofliberty.org. The other is Pay to Play by my friend John Ennis. You can get more information on that at paytoplay.tv. I believe I will be speaking on uh, panels or something after both of those screenings that are both on Saturday night up at Netroots Nation. If you happen to be there, search me out. Say hello. I'd love to uh, love to see you. Okay, we've got a big show for you today. I was... Um, I was guest hosting yesterday on the Ed Schultz Show and uh, had some interviews with uh, some of my favorite progressive journalists, amongst them uh, Ari Berman of The Nation. We discussed the uh, the Supreme Court decision, the Supreme Court ruling earlier this week uh, on Monday concerning Arizona's proof of citizenship requirement that has now been uh, struck down, at least for the time being in Arizona, proof of citizenship when it comes to voter registration and about the upcoming decision that uh, we are all worried about, at least those of us who are concerned about voting rights, that we are all worried about that could come as early as Thursday of this week. So, uh, and that's very troubling. It concerns the Voting Rights and the Voting Rights Act, the beloved Voting Rights Act, uh, which may see its important Section 5 shot down. We're going to be talking uh, with Ari Berman about that a little bit later in this show. 
Uh, I also spoke yesterday on the Ed Schultz Show with David Day, and I'm going to run parts of that interview as well. He's the blogger formerly known as D-Day. He's got a, a tremendous article and, and a, a disturbing article, frankly, in the New Republic this week uh, about how the mortgage industry, I should say the insurance industry and the mortgage, mortgage industry are colluding together after disasters. This is amazing to keep homeowners from getting their own uh, their their insurance money from being able to use that insurance money to fix their house. For example, in Moore, Oklahoma, where houses were flattened and where these uh, mortgage companies are now tricking, hoaxing the uh, the homeowners into using that money to pay off their mortgage. Unbelievable story. We're going to be talking with uh, David Dayan about that in a little bit. Uh, But first, uh, before we get to any of that, of course, the thing that everyone is talking about, or at least should be talking about, is uh, this this, uh, NSA spying these documents that were leaked by Edward Snowden. Last week, we spoke with uh, Daniel Ellsberg, the legendary Pentagon Papers whistleblower on this program. Ellsberg is quite concerned about what was uh, what was leaked by Snowden. He finds uh, Edward Snowden to be a courageous patriot, he told me during that interview last week. If you missed it, you can go to bradblog.com and give it a listen. It was a, a really good interview, really interesting, especially to get his perspective, to get Ellsberg's perspective from one of the very few uh, people in this entire country who understands what it is that Edward Snowden right now is going through and what it is like to have an entire country, a a presidential administration out to get you, out to destroy you. And in fact, one of the most chilling points that Ellsberg made when we talked last week was that when President Nixon had uh, focused on him, had targeted him for leaking the uh, the Pentagon Papers back in 1971, Ellsberg said that, you know, he went after his, uh, after Ellsberg's uh, psychiatrist's office. They broke into the psychiatrist's office to steal documents to try to blackmail him. President Nixon uh, wanted him, quote, eliminated. And what Ellsberg pointed out is when Nixon was doing all of that to him back in 1971, those things were actually illegal. Now, not so much. And uh, the president has so much more power now to do just about anything he wants, including killing, assassinating U.S. citizens without due process, with a, a, a secret process, if there is one that only the executive knows about. It is quite troubling. Yet in the wake of these uh, disclosures by uh, NSA whistleblower, NSA contractor turned whistleblower Edward Snowden, we have begun a national conversation in this country, which, interestingly enough, is what all of Ed Snowden's uh, detractors seem to want. They say, oh, it's terrible. He's a traitor. He did this. He did that. He should be uh, thrown in jail. It's awful. He's, he's damaging our national security. He's putting people at risk. And then they say, but of course, we need to have a public debate uh, across the nation about these secret programs and about the secret massive surveillance state. Even President Obama has said we need to have a public conversation about this, raising the question of, well, how were we supposed to have a public conversation about this 
if we didn't know about it, if even the uh, the Congress and the intelligence committees there that are tasked with overseeing these uh, programs, if even they didn't know about it, if even they, uh, guys like a Senator uh, Senator Wyden and Udall, were yelling and screaming, saying, please give us more transparency on these programs, because the FISA, the For- uh, Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Court, looks at these programs, makes these decisions based on what the executive branch says. There's nobody there to challenge what the executive branch says. They make these decisions, and then their decisions, their rulings themselves are all in secret. So what kind of oversight can there possibly be? When the Senate says, you know, we we don't even know what's going on. We can't talk about what's going on. Even when we do learn what's going on, even when we find a problem, we're sworn to secrecy. We can't say anything. The FISA court can't say anything. They're, well, they can say something, but their decisions are sealed. They're not made public. And so these are very real concerns. And we are finally now having a national conversation for now on some of these issues, which I think are real damn important. Nonetheless, uh, the president sat down with Charlie Rose on CBS this week to try to put everyone at ease. <laughs> and uh, well, here's, here's just a few uh, seconds of what he had to say. The FBI, if in fact it now wants to get content, if in fact it wants to start tapping that phone, it's got to go to the FISA court with probable cause and ask for a warrant. But so, has FISA courts turned down any requests? Because, the first of all, Charlie, the, the number of requests are surprisingly small, okay. number one. Number two, folks don't go with a query unless they've got a pretty good suspicion. Should this be transparent in some way? It is transparent. That's why we set up the FISA court. <laughs> That's It is transparent. That's why we set up the FISA court, the secret FISA court, the secret FISA court that when it makes rulings, it cannot release the rulings. The public can't see it. And uh, folks, uh, Democrats, again, in the uh, in the U.S. Senate have complained that what the FISA court is deciding, what their secret rulings are, differs greatly from the actual law. Mr. President, with all due respect, that is not transparency. And this notion that the number of requests that are turned into the FISA court is, quote, surprisingly small, I'm not sure if nearly 1,800 requests is surprisingly small. What's even more disturbing about that is that none of those almost 1,800 requests were denied in 2012. So there was almost 1,800 requests in 2012 for uh, spying, for secret uh, surveillance. None of them turned down at this secret court, which can't release its, uh, which can't release its findings, can't tell us why they uh, accept a case or deny a case. That is hardly transparency. One more quote I want to play here, and uh, and then we'll go to uh, Marcy Wheeler, who I talked about. Actually, uh, two points here I want to make. This is how much secrecy there is. Josh Marshall over at TPM, we talked about him actually with uh, Dan Ellsberg yesterday because uh, Marshall has been quite critical of Edward Snowden. And I asked Ellsberg about the comments that Josh made. Ellsberg called those comments, quote, stupid and misguided. And now we have this just yesterday at Talking Points Memo. They were working on a story over there about uh, oversight of the U.S. Senate. Well, here's what Josh wrote. 
Quote, here's a sort of bewildering looking glass sort of story that illustrates just how deep the secrecy goes in the entire Intel process. As part of the ongoing Snowden story, we were preparing a piece on the intelligence oversight process itself, particularly the mechanics of just how the congressional oversight committees work. Observers and critics have long argued that classified briefings are so circumscribed and controlled, often with members unable to bring their more technically knowledgeable staffs along, that the process of oversight becomes more nominal than real. Josh goes on to write, We spoke to a number of sources for the story, and one was a former general counsel of the U.S. Senate Select Committee on Intelligence. And in the process of this reporting, the Intel Committee forbade her from describing how the classified briefings are even run. Mind you, not any actual classified material or information, just the procedures of the classified briefings themselves, stuff like what members are allowed to ask and stuff like that. She was denied the ability to even discuss how the Oversight Committee on the U.S. Senate actually rolls. That's how bad it is. That's how bad the security state is. Uh, And even TPM, who has been uh, critical of Edward Snowden and these leaks, even them, it seems, uh, even they, it seems, were were taken aback by by just how secret the U.S. Intelligence uh, Oversight Committee is. Yesterday, while I was guest hosting the Ed Schultz Show, There was a House Intelligence Committee uh, oversight committee going on. I should add Michelle Bachman is a member of that uh, House Intelligence Committee, so you know it's intelligent. Uh, And uh, I spoke with Marcy Wheeler. She was at the time monitoring and watching those uh, those hearings. Marcy Wheeler is, of course, Empty Wheel from EmptyWheel.net. She uh, covers legal issues around national security and presidential politics for years. She's been doing so. She was the source when it when it came to reporting on the Valerie Plame outing and all of that going back years. She has an encyclopedic knowledge of of all of these matters of national security. She's also the author of Anatomy of Deceit. How the Bush administration used the media to sell the Iraq war and out a spy. I spoke with Marcy yesterday during those hearings to find out if, in fact, uh, the uh, the transparency we were all promised uh, was actually being delivered, and if, in fact, those in the uh, the, the national uh, intelligence officers who have been saying that these programs that Edward Snowden discussed, that these programs had actually saved lives, had actually stopped terrorists' attacks, I asked her if that was uh, if that was really the case. Here's my interview with Marcy Wheeler yesterday from the Ed Schultz Show. Welcome to the Ed Schultz Show. Thanks for having me, Brad. Uh, thank you for being had. Now, here's my question. <laughs> here's my question for you, uh, General Alexander. This morning, here's what he had to say about these programs that Ed Snowden has uh, has helped disclose. These programs, together with other intelligence, have protected the U.S. and our allies from terrorist threats across the globe, to include helping prevent the terrorist, the, the potential terrorist events over 50 times since 9-11. There you go, uh, Marcy. Everything's okay because these programs have helped us over 50 times since 9-11. So why is it that you, Marcy Wheeler, want to help the terrorists and, uh, and, and continue reporting on these programs? Well, let's put those numbers in perspective. Of those 50 plots, reported plots, um, there have been at least 400 wrapped up in the United States, I think actually just in the last 
uh, four or five years. Um, and he's talking about internationally. So there has been less than one in eight spots that have been helped by the ability to go get signals directly, um, directly in a kind of um, legal sense from the supplier. Mm-hmm. So right there, that's just one out of eight cases where it has helped probably far, far less. And then the dragnet collection, which is the government gets the phone records from all Americans, keeps them in file for five years, and then sometimes goes in to check to see if um, known terrorist numbers are talking to people in the United States. That program, for which they've collected the phone records of all Americans claiming they are relevant to a terrorist investigation, has only helped to work 10 spots been involved in sorting 10 plots, and as the witnesses testified to Adam Schiff today, they have other means of getting that information. So they've basically taken an entire nuclear arsenal to go after 10 plots that they could use, they could go after another other means. And uh, so, so they didn't. So, so they were instrumental in those plots, but they were not absolutely necessary. They could have gotten at those plots other ways, is what you're contending, correct? So they're saying two things. One is they were not them. They were not necessarily the most critical piece of intelligence in those plots. So first of all, it's not like if they didn't have those, they wouldn't have supported the plot. But secondly, and this is uh, this is this came via a different uh, questioning period. Um, they have other means to get it. They can mm-hmm. they can get that same exact information by when they get a terrorist phone number going to the telecoms, the same ones they're going to and collecting all the information and saying, hi, do you have any information about this one particular phone number? Um, so a very limited means, a very controlled means. By doing that, the telecoms are involved and they're going to ask for paperwork. They're going to ask you to prove your case. They have that means to, to go get the same exact information that instead they are collecting all of our phone information, claiming all of our phone information is relevant to the terrorist investigation. And that is, of course, if you believe them, uh, that it has been used uh, 50 different times since 9-11. It may or may not have been. They've come out. They've sent a lot of things. Uh, uh, James Clapper, the director of national intelligence, had said that, no, this is just uh, weeks ago, I think. He said, no, we are not collecting phone records for millions of Americans. He blatantly lied to Congress about that. Uh, and then, you know, in plots, when they when they pointed to them specifically, like the Zazi plot, uh, they said, oh, this was this, these programs were instrumental in that. But we find out that, in fact, they weren't instrumental, that uh, the the email address that this guy Zazi was using had come out, I guess, in a was it a British court case had come out. So they had that information. They could have taken that uh, email and gone specifically to only the stuff they need rather than having this dragnet where they bring in millions and millions of, uh, of, of, of uh, email records and everything else from people, right? Right, exactly. And they um, part of the in- entire point of having this hearing was to reveal two more plots that supposedly were thwarted with these. Um, one appears to have happened under Dick Cheney's illegal program, although that, that, that's the initial read on that, meaning it can't, the plot started in 2004, so this goes way back. The other one, um, they found just four guys in San Diego who were materially supporting um, al-Shabaab in Somalia. So they weren't even actually involved in a terrorist plot. They were sending money. And that's the, those are the four cases that they point to. Now, they say there are you know, upwards of 15 more that, that they have similar levels of 
of evidence for. But the problem is all four of these cases have some problem or kind of, eh, you know, they're, they're not, um, they, they keep offering these cases as justification for these programs. And even these, these cases are pretty unexciting or have big problems. The president has come out and he has said over the last few days that nobody is listening to your phone calls. Uh, he, he says that these uh, programs have been misrepresented. They're, they're only getting metadata records of uh, things like phone calls and emails and so forth. They're not actually listening to phone calls. He also had this to say last night, I believe, with, uh, with Charlie Rose on CBS. It is transparent. That's why we set up the FISA court. Some people say, well, you know, Obama was this raving liberal before. Now he's, you know, Dick Cheney. Dick right. Cheney sometimes <laughs> says, yeah, you know, he took it all lock, stock, and barrel. My yeah. concern has always been not that we shouldn't do intelligence gathering to prevent terrorism, but rather, are we setting up a systems of checks and balances? So a system of checks and balances, a transparent uh, process in the FISA court. Uh, nobody is listening to your phone calls. Marcy, does that make you feel any better about these uh, disclosures now that uh, the president is coming out and, and, and putting uh, Americans' worst fears to rest here? One thing we learned is that the reporting, you know, the, the so-called three branches of reporting that everyone is touting here and the involvement in particular of the fire support still all goes to the executive branch. So it is true, or at least it was claimed at this hearing, that the fire support gets um, details about how many times this dragnet database of American uh, calls is actually accessed but they only get it in aggregate, and they only get the reporting through through the executive branch. So, in other words, in Adam Schiff, again, I mean, if you want to see the hearing, all you got to do is just watch Adam Schiff, watch General Alexander's introduction, watch the introductions in general, because they are more informative than we've gotten in, you know, 11 years of this spying. But um, Adam Schiff, by far, asked that questions, and he said, well, you know, don't you think maybe you ought to have the FISA court do the auditing on on those reports rather than the executive branch, and that's when people started getting uncomfortable because that would be real oversight. And right now we're still relying on the executive branch checking the executive branch. And on top of that, you've got the FISA court, where, you know, who releases their findings in secret. But what people don't understand is it's not an adversarial court system. It's not like a regular court system where somebody presents evidence and somebody opposes that evidence and then a judge decides. There is nobody presenting the other side of this case. The uh, the executive branch comes in, makes its case, and at least uh, in, I think it was 1,700 cases. Uh, oh, in 2012, the uh, FISA court has approved the request by the executive branch. There's been nobody there to fight against it. They've approved it. It's been a rubber stamp in almost 1,800 cases in the last year alone with no denials. Uh, very quick before we, uh, before we go here, Marcy, uh, anything else coming out in today's hearings? Uh, did Michelle Bachman show up and say anything stupid? Michelle Bachman, Steve Bartier, showed up and said, um, we need more of this surveillance, and Edward Snowden is a traitor. Um, so <laughs> I guess now that she's not going to run again, she doesn't care about the purported Tea Party claim uh, supporting Fourth Amendment rights. No, I mean, I, I think that, that the big takeaway from the hearing is we've learned more details that we should have learned years ago. That's something Jen Schakowsky pointed out. Um, there are still holes in the oversight, and the Dragnet program in particular really doesn't seem to have a justifiable case. 
And what do you say to uh, Democrats and people who are supposed to be progressives who say that, uh, you know, Snowden is a villain. We shouldn't be talking about these programs. It harms our national security. Uh, you know, and Democrats should not be speaking about this at all. What's your response in 30 seconds? We've gotten the oversight. We've gotten more transparency in the last week and a half than we have in 11 years. And we're identifying holes that need to be plugged. Um, you know, the... the um, a couple of the witnesses today said, well, Congress really should decide what the limits of this dragnet surveillance are, and yet Congress hasn't known until 10 days ago exactly what the dragnet surveillance included. So how did they expect Congress to do that? Even the Congress who was supposed to be the oversight here had no idea what was going on. Uh, Marcy Wheeler, uh, thanks for all your work here. Emptywheel.net. Check her out. Uh, get into the weeds on this and understand just what it is that people are talking about when they say that, uh, oh, it stopped a plot. Well, no, it really didn't. Uh, she's the source. She's the one who knows. And like I say, an institutional memory that, that goes back uh, the last uh, 15 years like you would not believe. Marcy Wheeler, Emptywheel.net. Find her on the Twitters, at Emptywheel. Thanks, Marcy. Always great talking to you. Thanks so much, Brad. The dragnet continues. The national dragnet. The worldwide dragnet continues. We're going to take a quick break here and come back with much more of the Bradcast. Straight ahead, we've got Ari Berman of The Nation on the Supreme Court. We've got David Dayan on the latest mortgage scam. And, of course, the lovely Desi Doyen will be joining us with the Green News Report and much more. All of that straight ahead right here on the Bradcast. I'm Brad Friedman. Stay tuned. Hello, this is Dutch Merrick, Vice Chair of the KPFK Local Station Board. Our next board meeting will be held on Wednesday, June 19th from 7 p.m. to 10 p.m. at 3916 South Sepulveda Boulevard in Culver City, 90230, in Room 101. There's plenty of free parking right behind the building. Details are on our calendar at kpfk.org. As corporate control radio spins us out of control, there's never been a better time to stand up for truly independent radio, KPFK. Need to earn a couple extra college credits? Why not earn them at KPFK? If you appreciate progressive news, culture, music, and more, come and be a part of the movement. Call 818-985-2711, extension 513, to learn about internship opportunities. Or log on to kpfk.org and click on volunteer to find out more.
from the gates of hell, this is the Bradcast. Brad Friedman of bradblog.com. And I can't believe I forgot to tease this. Can't believe I forgot to tease this. We've got a new election fraud conviction. 36 counts relating to submitted uh, submitting forged signatures in the failed attempt by the Gingrich campaign to qualify for Virginia's 2012 Republican presidential primary ballot. This is a story that I have been uh, following. As a matter of fact, exclusively, we broke the story at bradblog.com last January. January of 2012, we broke the story exclusively of the criminal investigation into the Newt Gingrich campaign up there in Virginia, which had uh, submitted... Uh, more than the 10,000 signatures it needed to get onto the Republican primary presidential ballot last year. Problem was, uh, thousands of those signatures were fraudulent. And uh, we had, uh, back in April, a uh, a Gingrich campaign worker named Jennifer Derriberry pleaded guilty to uh, felony charges of uh, election fraud and perjury after prosecutors said she had, quote, turned over stacks of signed and notarized forms to the Virginia Board of Elections containing roughly 400 signatures, nearly all of them fraudulent. That was uh, when she pled guilty back in April. Now we have a new uh, her her uh, co-conspirator here, 28-year-old Adam Ward, has now pleaded guilty to 36 counts related to submitting forged signatures in the attempt to get Newt Gingrich on the ballot in Virginia in 2012 in the primary there. This all came about after Newt was caught on videotape in Iowa in December of 2011, uh, speaking with a supporter at the time about why he would not be appearing on the Virginia ballot. The audio here is a little bit difficult to hear, but let's uh, play it. It's very short, and then I'll, I'll tell you what he said. It was, uh, well, basically Newt Gingrich trying to minimize this crime as, quote, just a mistake. It was just a mistake. We hired somebody who turned in false signatures. Turning 11,100, you needed 10,000. 1,500 of them were one guy who frankly committed fraud. So there you go. It was just a mistake, says Newt Gingrich. We turned in 11,100. We needed 10,000. 1,500 of them were by one guy, frankly, who committed fraud. Well, as it turns out, it wasn't one guy. It was uh, at least now one guy and one girl. Virginia authorities have said the case is still open, that there could be more arrests in this case. And it wasn't 1,500 fraudulent ballots. It was some 4,000 fraudulent, not ballots, but fraudulent signatures. 4,000 fraudulent signatures that were turned in, or at least the state authorities were not able to verify as having been accurate. Now, remember, this is Newt Gingrich. This is Newt Gingrich, who back in uh, back in 2009 had written an op-ed claiming that, quote, ACORN has a long history of engaging in voter fraud. And, of course, ACORN has not engaged in voter fraud. Some of their workers, a handful of them, were found to have committed voter registration fraud, and they were turned in to authorities by ACORN themselves. When the story first came out, Tommy Christopher over at Media Mediaite had uh, wrote, quote, Acorn had a much better ratio of valid registrations to fraudulent ones than Gingrich. 
13% of Gingrich's signatures were bogus, while Acorn's error rate was around 1.5%, according to Project Vote. Most of the Acorn applications that were rejected were duplicates, not actually fraudulent ones. And, of course, Tommy Christopher at the time was basing that on the idea that there was 1,500 fraudulent signatures, not 4,000 fraudulent signatures, as appears to be the case today. He went on to write that what uh, Gingrich's campaign did was, quote, arguably worse than what Acorn was accused of. Indeed. And now we have a second guilty plea there. That makes it a conspiracy. Yes, an election fraud conspiracy. And who knows how high it goes? Who knows what uh, what Newt Gingrich knew and when he knew it in this uh, in this case? But, you know, once again, we've been reporting 2012 as the year of Republican election fraud as case after case, allegation after allegation by top level Republicans, including, for example, Mitt Romney, who voted, uh, who was registered to vote uh, at in his son's basement in Massachusetts. He didn't actually own a house there. He voted there in the uh, special election uh, back in, I believe it was 2010, between Scott Brown and Martha Coakley for the U.S. Senate, even though he had a house in California, another one in New Hampshire, he had no house in Massachusetts. And nonetheless, that's where he, uh, Mitt Romney, voted from. Uh, one case after another of Republican election fraud uh, that we've been covering uh, over the past year or two at uh, at bradblog.com, even while the Republicans are out lying about Democrats committing voter fraud, about ACORN committing voter fraud, all so that they can get photo ID in place at the polling place to restrict legal voters from being able to cast their vote. On that point, this week, the U.S. Supreme Court came out with a ruling that was very much exactly about this. Arizona, the state of Arizona, had put in place a law that would require uh, new voter registrants to submit documentation proving that they were, in fact, citizens. Never mind the fact that there's been no problem in Arizona with non-citizens voting. The state of Arizona insisted that you gave them a, a passport or some other sort of papers to, pl- to prove your citizenship. This caused a problem, of course, because we've got a national voter registration form under the National Voter Registration Act of 1993, And uh, that form, when you turn it in, does not require any additional documentation such as uh, Arizona was requiring. And since they were requiring that documentation, they were rejecting the National Voter Registration Act national forms. I spoke with Ari Berman about that yesterday, again, while I was guest hosting the Ed Schultz Show yesterday morning. Ari Berman is a contributing writer for The Nation magazine. He's an investigative journalism fellow at The Nation Institute. His first book, Herding Donkeys, The Fight to Rebuild the Democratic Party and Reshape American Politics, was published in 2010. He is now working on a book on the history of voting rights. Here's my conversation with Ari Berman yesterday. Hey, Ari Berman. Welcome, sir, to The Ed Schultz Show. Hey, Brad. Thanks for having me. Uh, thank you. And and uh, thank you for uh, all of your great coverage uh, over the past year. I got to say, uh, having you covering the, on the voter suppression beat, uh, the Supreme Court beat on these issues and what was going on in the lead up to election uh, was just terrific. Your work has been great on this. And to that end, 
Ari. Uh, explain to us what the Supreme Court decided yesterday in a 7-2 to two decision led by, of all people, Justice Antonin Scalia. What happened and why is that important? Sure. Well, the, the Supreme Court was looking at Arizona's Proposition 200, which was passed in 2004. And one of the provisions said that you have to have proof of citizenship to register to vote. Now, the problem with that is that the 1993 National Voter Registration Act says that you do not need to give, for example, a driver's license in, in order to register to vote. And what Arizona was saying is that uh, if people use the federal form uh, as provided by the National Voter Registration Act, it has to conform to their state law of proof of citizenship. And the Supreme Court in this 7-2 decision said, no, it doesn't, that the federal form uh, preempts the state form and that uh, the state law has to be consistent with federal law. And so Arizona can't just throw out federal registration forms because it doesn't conform to their proof of registration, their proof of citizenship for registration. So that was a fairly technical yeah. opinion, but it was basically a law, uh, a decision striking down uh, the proof of, of citizenship for registration for these federal forms that are used. So, so basically, the, the uh, National Voter Registration Act of 1993 makes it easy for everyone in the country to uh, uh, to register to vote on one simple form. They make that available online. They give it away uh, when you go and get a driver's license or when you go to a, a federal office. Um, and all you got to do is fill it out and, and send it in, and you should be registered. So Arizona, on top of that, said... We also need documentation to prove that you are a citizen. And if you register to vote and don't include those documents, we are going to throw away uh, that registration form. Is that what they were doing in Arizona when people would submit these, uh, th this uh, national voter registration form in Arizona? Yeah, that's what they were doing. So over 31,000 people were, were rejected for voter registration in Arizona as a result of Proposition 200. Uh, less than a third of them subsequently were able to, to register to vote uh, through other means. And so not only did uh, voter registrations plunge, but voter registration drives uh, plunged as well because uh, what happens is that uh, – the voter registration groups were using these federal forms to try to register voters. It's the easiest form to be able to use. It's hard to, for example, show up um, at a voter registration drive and say to someone, oh, by the way, uh, do you have your passport on you, for example, uh, exactly. when you're registering uh, to vote? Not everyone has that information. So, for example, in Phoenix's Maricopa County, the number of people who are registered by voter registration drives dropped from 24% in 2004 to only 7%. Uh, in 2005, a year after the enactment of the law. So it did really have a chilling effect on registration in Arizona. I, I should add that the whole justification for proof of citizenship laws is that there's some sort of fraud going on in voter registration that necessitates uh, more documentation, but there's absolutely uh, no evidence of that. Uh, the lower courts, the Ninth Circuit Court, which blocked the law, uh, found that there was no fraud in voter registration, that the federal form uh, worked just fine. And so there was really no reason for Arizona to require this additional documentation. So, so they were unable to show any evidence that uh, non-citizens were somehow gaming the system uh, to, uh, to become registered voters in, in Arizona, uh, and, and, and yet they were willing to go all the way to the Supreme Court to, to make this case. There, there have been a number of other states who uh, have also passed similar laws. Will their laws also now be uh, nullified by the Supreme Court decision, Ari Berman? Not necessarily. The distinction between 
using state forms to register to vote and using federal forms to register to vote. So what Arizona was doing is it was saying you can't use the federal form to register to vote. So uh, if other states, for example, like Alabama, Kansas, and Tennessee uh, were to do that, uh, then that they would be in, in trouble with the court. Now, if they just say, okay, well, for for the federal form, you can keep using it, but we're going to have our own forms, it seems like that would be okay. This is why it's something of a qualified victory uh, before the court, because it's not like the Supreme Court said uh, you can't require additional documentation for voter registration. What they said is you can't not accept the federal forms that are already in existence. Okay, and now it was Scalia who, who uh, led this decision, uh, the 7-2 to two court ruling uh, this week. He had been critical uh, of the case previously. If people had been listening to the hearings, they would have thought that uh, Scalia was going to fall on the other side in this case. He ends up writing the opinion for the majority in this case. Can we take anything away from that, Ari Berman, in regard to the Voting Rights Act ruling, which could be uh, come out as early as Thursday this week? Uh, and just to get everyone up to speed here, this is on Section 5 of the Voting Rights Act, uh, a provision, the uh, Voting Rights Act of uh, 1965, a provision that requires certain states, certain jurisdictions to get preclearance for new election-related laws because they are jurisdictions with a long history of racial discrimination. And it was Section 5 that stopped, for example, uh, Texas this year and South Carolina this year from instituting their polling place photo ID restriction laws, which would have kept tens of thousands of legal voters from being able to cast a vote. Uh, the Supreme Court now may do away with Section 5 and the requirement for that preclearance. Scalia called it uh, what did he call it, Ari? A racial... Uh, a perpetuation of racial entitlement. A perpetuation of racial entitlement. Uh, he was seemed clearly against it. Can we take from this Arizona decision that, well, maybe Scalia will not be against it. Maybe he'll, he'll come out on the other side of this case, too, and, and maybe Section 5 won't go down, as many uh, Supreme Court watchers now believe that it will. No, I don't think we can take that from the decision. I think Scalia has made his views on the Voting Rights Act uh, pretty clear, and so I think he will definitely be among uh, at least four of the justices, I would assume, uh, who are going to want to overturn or at least narrow Section 5 of the Voting Rights Act. Uh, but I do think there have been some strange bedfellows uh, in terms of the decisions of the court recently, not just Scalia writing the 7-2 decision, but you saw another decision, uh, I think, yesterday where Thomas uh, wrote the majority uh, and was joined by the liberals. You saw another case where Scalia was in the majority and was joined uh, by the liberal members members of the court. So I don't necessarily think it's a foregone conclusion that we're going to have a 5-4 conservative uh, majority riding uh, the Shelby County Voting Rights Act opinion. Now, that would be, I think, the most obvious uh, prediction based on what we heard in oral arguments. Mm -hmm. uh, but we don't really know what's going on here. There could be a lot of horse trading. It seems like the liberals on the court went along with some stuff in the Scalia decision in the voting rights case with regards to Arizona. They might not have gone along with otherwise because they they wanted to be in the majority. They wanted to be a 7-2 decision. So it wasn't an, an unequivocal victory for voting rights, but I think they figured that at least a qualified victory for voting rights would be better than no victory. Uh, and it's possible there could be some sort of horse trading going on with the Section 5 opinion to try to convince either Roberts or Kennedy to stop short of overturning what would be uh, such an important provision of a landmark civil rights law.
In the 30 seconds we have left, Ari Berman, uh, do you share my concern if Section 5 is killed by the uh, Supreme Court that this is going to have a radical uh, effect across the country uh, when it comes to election laws and voter suppression? I'm very concerned what happens if they get rid of Section 5 here. Well, absolutely. I mean, Section 5 has been the most effective thing the federal government has done ever, I would argue, to stop voting discrimination. And so I don't think that anything can easily uh, replace it. I think you get rid of something like that, and they'll have a lot of ramifications, not just in the South, in the states where Section 5 is covered, uh, but in other states which will feel emboldened uh, to push voter suppression measures. So I I think it would have a really disastrous impact on our democracy. Not good. Uh, Very troubling. Ari Berman, uh, thank you so much again uh, for your work. You can find Ari Berman's work at The Nation his upcoming book. You got a title for your book yet, Ari? No, it's still in uh, formative stages. All right. Uh, a voting rights book to come. Uh, check him out at The Nation and on the Twitters at Ari Berman. Thank you, brother. What is known and the evidence is clear. I'm not alone. There are thousands of us here. This is my democracy. You won't go No, you won't. You can try, but it won't work. I won't listen to you. That was my interview yesterday with Ari Berman uh, while I was guest hosting the Ed Schultz Show. This is Brad Friedman. This is the Bradcast, and I'm running late, so I want to get right to David Day and my conversation with him also yesterday on the uh, on the Ed Schultz Show. And then, and then Desi, uh, stand by. We'll see if we have time for you in the Green News Report thereafter. This is my conversation with David Day and about his article, Unnatural Disaster, How Mortgage Servicers Are Strong-Arming the Victims of the Moore, Oklahoma Tornado, Among Others. David Day, and yes, the blogger formerly known as D-Day uh, at the news desk of Fire Dog Lake for years on end. Uh, he's now writing for the New Republic, among others. He has a story today that I am sure, I am sure I am misunderstanding. It is called Unnatural Disaster, How Mortgage Servicers Are Strong-Arming the Victims of the Moore, Oklahoma Tornado, among others. I'm sure... Uh, this can't be right. I'm sure I don't understand it correctly. He'll he'll straighten me out because it seems to me here that you've got collusion uh, somehow between the insurance industry after a disaster between the insurance industry and the mortgage industry all happening on the backs of regular old citizens. I'm sure I must have misread this story. Hey, David Day, and welcome, sir, to the Ed Schultz Show. Hi, how you doing? Always good to talk to you, Brad. Great to talk uh, to you, my friend. I, I have this story all wrong, right? Sadly, you have it all right. Uh-oh. Uh, basically, uh, there's a little-known fact that when you put in a large insurance claim, uh, that check that you get back from your insurance company is not just made out to you, the policyholder. It is actually co-signed to you, and your mortgage servicer. Those are the people that take your mortgage payment. Uh, and they then have to endorse it over to you in order for you to begin to make the necessary repairs. That gives a lot of leverage to the mortgage servicer to dictate terms uh, of how you end up getting that insurance money. And they've used this uh, all the, going back all the way to Katrina, 
in very malignant ways, uh, particularly to uh, if you happen to be in foreclosure at the time uh-huh. that you uh, experienced and suffered this natural disaster. Uh, in many, many cases, the mortgage servicer will tell you uh, that you have to pay off and get current on your mortgage with the insurance money before they'll release it for you to start making repairs. This is a total breach of contract. The insurance money is supposed to go directly towards repairs. But, you know, as it was said to me by a member of Legal Aid Services, mm-hmm. when a guy in a nice suit comes in and tells you that you have to do this in order to get your money and you don't know any better, A, and B, you're in a situation of desperation where right. you've lost your house and your possessions and you have nowhere to live, you're probably going to say, okay, uh, and then the money gets siphoned away and then and the bank gets big paid. So, so let me just, be, because I... Like I said, when I read this story, I thought I must be misunderstanding it. And even just now when you explained it, uh, I must be misunderstanding. What you were saying is if a tornado comes into a place like Moore, Oklahoma, destroys, uh, takes off your roof, destroys a room, flattens the house, or uh, a, a flood in anywhere U.S., as we have more and more of those, a hurricane, Hurricane Sandy comes into uh, New York, New Jersey, uh, Katrina down there, your house gets wiped out. Uh, or part of it gets wiped out, the insurance company, instead of giving you a check or giving you money to rebuild your house, to rebuild the room, to put the roof back on, instead, they give you that money, but it also must be co-signed by the mortgage provider, and they have to essentially okay it and sign off before you're allowed to even use any of this money to to rebuild? That's correct. And uh, that's a standard practice in, in insurance contracts and in your mortgage uh, documentation. And uh, there's a reason for it. I mean, the reason is that if you end up, you can't uh, rebuild in that area. Say that they say that this is now an off-limit zone. We're not going to allow rebuilding in this area. Then the mortgage company can, can you know, recoup uh, what would be a total loss for them. But obviously, this tilts things far in the direction of the mortgage servicer rather than the individual policyholder. So it's perfectly uh, legal. It's problem, like you're saying. It, right it's, now. It, it, so it's perfectly legal uh, to do this, to, to make it so that the mortgage company has to co-sign. What is not legal, uh, or maybe it is, uh, is these mortgage providers then come in to the guy who's just lost his house and they say, yeah, you need to take this money and put it towards paying off your mortgage. That is yeah, illegal. Seems like it is, but nobody will go the extra mile and say that it is. You know, I quote Sean Donovan, the uh, Department of Housing and Urban Development uh, secretary, in the piece where he he's just kind of saying that you know this shouldn't happen, that this is bad for homeowners and it helps, it it, it doesn't uh, allow people to rebuild their lives, and it really just shouldn't happen. But nobody will go the extra mile and say this can't happen, and this is actually a breach of the contract. It really plays more into contract law because there doesn't seem to be a lot of laws around it. I mean, insurance companies are regulated usually at the state level, so it varies from state to state. Jurisdictions are different from state to state. The state insurance department in Oklahoma, who I spoke with, doesn't have jurisdiction over mortgage servicers at all. So it's up to the attorney general, really, to come in and deal with that situation. In New York, during uh, Sandy, it was up to the Department of Financial Services, who did very aggressive work, but it was all around kind of shaming mortgage servicers into stopping this practice rather than using laws 
There's so it, it, so, so it, it may it's very hard to say. It may not be illegal what they're doing, just unbelievably un, uh, distasteful and it's unbelievably and, unethical and, and unethical. And, and, and really, it, it, it represents a tremendous overreach on the part of mortgage servicers. And it's not just for people in foreclosure. I mean, the other problem is, is that mortgage servicers are just terrible customer service representatives and just trying to get the money out, even if they're not trying to screw you over, just trying to get the money out of your mortgage servicer. Anyone who's called a, a mortgage servicing company knows that, that it's, you don't get the same person every time. It's hard to explain what you what you actually want out of them, and they slow walk everything, and they, they drag their feet. And there are instances in New York after Sandy of people waiting months and months and months for the insurance money. Meanwhile, their their house is getting moldy. They're having to live somewhere else. I mean, it's a terrible, terrible situation, very under the radar, that these servicers are really just compounding the suffering that disaster victims are experiencing. David Dayanar, do you find uh, any states uh, any better or worse than any other? In other words, do we have, you know, some of these states, Texas and and, uh, Oklahoma, all about the free market. The free market will take care of itself. Uh, Do do you see a difference in the states in how they deal with uh, these issues and and how they fight for for homeowners versus let the industry go wild? Certainly. I used the case study of New York after Hurricane Sandy, and the governor and the Department of Financial Services were extremely aggressive in trying to stop these practices. Uh, they, they, they named and shamed all these banks that were hold, withholding millions, hundreds of millions of dollars of this insurance money, uh, and they made eventually made agreements with a lot of them, although there are still problems. Uh, and that's a, a state with, which has a deep knowledge of financial regulation dealing with these these large Wall Street uh, banks. Uh, Oklahoma and Texas obviously don't have that experience. Uh, As you say, they're they're more about the free market. Uh, They say that they're ready for this kind of thing, but, uh, you know, it's clear that if you have a a bigger cop on the beat, uh, that's going to be more of a deterrent. Great, uh, great work on this, David Day. And, and, and let me add, uh, great work that you've been doing now for many years, keeping your eyes on the, uh, the mortgage crisis, the foreclosure uh, uh, crisis that are going on when so many in the media and the mainstream media are moving on to the next shiny object. Uh, thank you for, uh, for keeping your eyes on this and trying to raise some holy hell so people uh, pay attention to this and start taking care of our people. Uh, instead of, you know, billion-dollar boondoggles uh, overseas. Really appreciate your work for many years on this, David. Thank you very much, Brad, for your interest in it. That's David Day, and check out his report, Unnatural Disaster, How Mortgage Services Are Strong-Arming the Victims of the Moore, Oklahoma Tornado, among others, over at New Republic. You can also tweet him at ddayan and follow him there as well. He's a great follow. Maddening story, that one. I'm glad we were able to get it in, even though it means we are running late, even though it means we are not going to be able to play the complete Green News report. However, we will still be joined momentarily, for at least for a few minutes, by the lovely Desi Doyen. It's not easy being green. See, even time for your theme song. Uh, at least there's time for that. So You're welcome. Other ordinary things. <laughs> 
All right. Well, sorry about that, Des. We're running late, so yes. I'm going to push folks towards the uh, towards the website. Uh, for the latest Green News report, which they can get at uh, greennews.bradblog.com. They can download it on iTunes, Stitcher, uh, TuneIn. They can, where else can you get it? Uh, you can get it Stitcher, everywhere. Stitcher, uh, TuneIn Radio app. Yeah, I think that's, I go. think you covered all, all right. of them. Well, so so you can get it if you want to hear it. And uh, what is in this week's Green News report, yesterday's Green News report, well, our big top story was L.A. City Council yeah. almost unanimously passed a plastic bag ban. Eventually, it's going to be phasing out plastic bags in Los Angeles, which, which is a pretty big deal. Which means that the power of big bag has been defeated in the city of Los Angeles. <laughs> At least here in the city of Los Angeles. Very yeah, so Single-use plastic bags will be uh, will be phased out starting January 1st very slowly. You'll have to pay 10 cents if you want to get a paper bag from the city, I mean, from the store where you're shopping. And it's really good because it saves a lot of money on trash and waste, picking up waste. Two billion bags are used per year in L.A. alone. Also, uh, what, heat wave up in Alaska. Yeah, Alaska had a big uh, record heat wave uh, this last week. They're actually hotter than Miami. You can get more of that again on greennews.bradblog.com. Also, there is a huge wastewater, toxic wastewater spill up in Alberta, Canada, uh, near the tar sands uh, development up in Alberta. And that's a toxic wastewater. It's uh, from leftover from the oil and gas drilling processes. And it has... uh, uh, killed all the plants, all the trees, pretty much everything in about a hundred acre area. And that's just more of the conflict that environmentalists say is the reason why we do not need to have the Keystone XL pipeline running across the United States. Well, if we don't have that, who's going to kill every uh, tree and plant uh, in this country? Exactly. We can't, we can't let uh, Canada have all the fun by themselves. Okay, check that out at greennews.bradblog.com. Oh, also at uh, Facebook, you can uh, get to it there at oh, yeah. the Green News or at uh, Green News Report and via Twitter, you are Oh, at Green News Report. <laughs> well done. My thanks to Marcy Wheeler, David Dayen, and Ari Berman today. Stay tuned, by the way, for John Wiener, the 4 o'clock report. He will have live in studio John Densmore, John Densmore of The Doors. Yes, you heard me right. Also, if you're at Netroots Nation this weekend, uh, find me. I will be uh, speaking on a panel after Shadows of Liberty, which I'm in, and Pay to Play, which I'm also in, uh, both screening on Saturday night. I'd love to see you. My thanks to Desi Doyen, our producer, to G, our soundboard operator. Uh, and, uh, oh, that's it. You can tweet me at the Brad Blog, And until next week, you can find me at bradblog.com. Good night, America. <laughs>